from New York City. This is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and you seem to like the language family shows. I guess a lot of you want to know what languages are like around the world and how they divide into groups. And you know, I like the language family shows too. It's one of my favorite subjects. And like I've said, I can't give you every language family. Frankly, some of them lend themselves better to this format than others. And if I gave you all of them, it would get boring. But there are a great many where I'd like to share with you what fascinates me about them. And one show I haven't done that some of you have asked for is a show about Native American languages. And of course, that's not a single family, as we'll see, not by a long shot. Nevertheless, naturally, one thinks of them as a subject to themselves. And so let's do Native American languages. What are they? What were they? What makes them interesting? You really get so very little about these languages, except actually these days in the media, you do read quite a bit about revitalization of Native American languages, attempts to save them from no longer being spoken. But in a lot of that coverage, for very understandable reasons, you really learn nothing or next to nothing about what these languages are actually like. You would be pardoned for thinking that they lay out just like, you know, English and Spanish and German and Dutch and maybe Russian. It's just that their words are of different shapes and they have different endings. No, there's a lot more than that. You can learn quite a bit about language writ large by seeing how Native American languages work. Now, specifically, I want to do North America. It really would be too big a subject to do the entire Western Hemisphere. But even in North America, we're not talking about a single family, because first of all, before Europeans got to this continent, by conservative estimate, there were about 300 languages spoken. That's a lot more than you might think. I don't think that any of you thought that there was one quote-unquote Indian language. But you might think that there were, say, 25, maybe 40, or something like that. After all, you don't hear about the vast majority of them. But actually, it was about 300. And if you're talking about the difference between language and dialect, nobody asked me, and they shouldn't. But I would say that really it was probably more than 300. It was more like about 400. But several hundred. And the tragic thing is that of those original languages, it's at the point that after the next couple generations, say after the next 50 years, and some people say even less time, only a couple handfuls of those languages will be spoken in the sense that communities of people will be passing them on to toddlers. And that really is something that should give us pause. Really, it could be as few as about a dozen of these languages that actually have thriving and ongoing communities of people speaking them in the way that a human language is supposed to actually be used. So part of this lecture will give you a sense of what has been lost and why language death matters and why it's urgent to save these languages in some form as much as we can. Let's get to it. So we've got these 300 or so languages. Now they divide pretty neatly into three groups, and we'll get into what a family is versus a group. But for now, let's just call it a group. There are three groups. One of them is eskimo Aleut. Another one is Na-Dene. What in the world is that? We'll see. Then the other one is Amerind. So let's start with eskimo Aleut. These are languages that, as you might imagine, are spoken 
in the Arctic Circle and below. And so we're talking about much of Canada and also a little bit in Siberia. So if Sarah Palin could see Russia from her house in Alaska, then what she was looking on was an area where almost surely Eskimo Aleut languages either were or are spoken. And by the way, the term Eskimo is now, of course, incorrect and more correct, although apparently not perfect either, but the closest I think I could come to correct is to say Inuit. But the truth is that the language family itself is still conventionally called Eskimo Aleut or Eskalut, where the Eskimo part is not hidden. This family is divided into what you might call just three languages. Eskimo Aleut is small. There's Aleut, and that's spoken on that chain of islands that's off of Alaska and looks kind of like a braid. That's Aleut there. Then the two others are Yupik and Inuit. And within all three of these, there are dialects where they kind of skirt the line between being languages versus dialects and where do you draw the line. But three basic languages. And they're really interesting in terms of showing you what a language can be. And so, for example, one thing about them is that a sentence for us is in their language is often just a single long Dagwood sandwich of a word. Dagwood is a character in the old comic strip Blondie, by the way, for those of you who are not 700 years old. These long, long words that are whole sentences. It's fascinating. So, for example, Yupik. Um, this is Siberian Yupik. So this is maybe the Yupik that Sarah Palin can practically hear from her living room. How would you say, also, he wants to acquire a big boat? Or really, like, he wants to get a big boat, too. How would you say that? in Siberian Yupik. He wants to get a big boat too, is all one word. And that word is I'll do that again. All that is just one word. And just the sounds can be fascinating. And so there is a sound, not l, but and so that is this lateralized fricative, as we call it. It's not a mistake. It's not that I'm slurring. It's that that's actually a sound. Or the word ends in tuklu, tuklu. So I'm not saying tuklu. I'm saying tuklu, tuklu. I'm pronouncing something in the region of my uvula, that little thing bouncing around at the back of the throat. So you can have t, and you can have your hard stop there on your alveolar ridge. You can have k, we're used to that. That's the soft palate. Well, why is that the only stop? We know there's a such thing called the glottal stop, and that's uh, which is back there. Well, what about in between the soft palate, k, uh, and the glottal stop way back there? Uh, suppose it was... Uh, that's a uvular stop. Many languages have that too. So with these languages, if you see them on the page, one way that you know that it's Eskimo Aleut is that the words are suspiciously long. Another way you know is that there seem to be all these cues because of that wonderful sound. Some of you might be asking, you know, I'm saying, well, you know, it's this long word for what we would have as a sentence. Well, given the fact that we do not speak with spaces between, you get the point that I'm making. How do you make the decision to call these words words rather than just sentences where, for some reason, people don't write spaces between the words. And the answer to that is that the way 
the quote-unquote words come out in these long words that are actually sentences is different from the way they would be if they were just by themselves. And so, for example, boat, angyach, big, chlak. So it's the ch, the ch, and then ak. So, chlak, that's big. So, boat, big, that's how they say big boat. In the whole word that I've given as a sentence, the anyach lang the boat big is not anyach and then chlak. Instead, it's just anyachlak. That's all. So anyach and chlak get smashed together, and all you have in our sandwich word is anyachlak. Then another example, I'm not going to bother with the middle of it, but another example is that the word for also, sort of, that you tack on to the end of this to say, oh, he wants to get a big boat too. That word is, like if you looked it up in a dictionary, it's hlu, with that lateralized fricative, hlu. But in our word, it just comes out as lu, actually easier for us. The changes into a l. So it's all sorts of things like that. And this isn't just random aspects of the way you might say something fast today as opposed to tomorrow, how people talk with their mouth full, etc. This is really the way it has to go. These are rules. So when the words come together, they change each other in ways that only happen when they're next to each other in that way. That's one of the reasons why you think of these as single words. Not to mention that the speakers themselves will tell you it's just a word. They seem to know and you want to respect what they're saying. And it makes perfect sense. So that is this group. Aliyut, Yupik, and Inuit, called conventionally Eskimo Aliyut. They're up there. And actually, that's the smallest of our big groups. And Eskimo Aleut, definitely a family. Our second group, and this is definitely a family too, is called Na Dene. That doesn't get around much. More informally, you'll hear about the Athabascan languages, but technically Athabascan is just part of Na Dene. These are languages that stretch from Alaska into a lot of Western Canada, and then they make a jump down into the American Southwest, into where John Ford seemed to set every second one of his movies after a certain point. Down in Alaska, British Columbia and such, and then all of a sudden, down there. Nadine is about 50, 55 languages, and among them, the doggy in the window is Navajo. That's the people and perhaps the language that one hears about, especially because Navajo is the most thriving of the Native American languages by some counts. It's been one of the most thriving in particular. Navajo has had the largest population of native speakers and has been being passed on most vigorously of all the Native American languages until recently. That's changing, but that's part of why one hears about Navajo and may even meet somebody who speaks Navajo, etc. And Navajo is absolutely fascinating in that it shows you the outer edges of how very Baroque human language can be. And what I mean is something very simple about what it would be like to learn Navajo and how incredible the task would turn out to be and how incredible, therefore, it is that human beings speak this with ease. Human cognition never ceases to amaze me. So, for example, you have a verb and it means to move something. Although, of course, because this is Navajo, which gets very particular about this sort of thing, it's not just moving any old thing, not a chair, you know, not an umbrella, but things that are ropey. If you're going to move something that's ropey, like a dead snake or 
let's have it be a rope, then the verb for to move in the present is lay. So, present, past, future. Move a rope-like thing in the present, lay. In the past, it's la. In the future, it's lay. And notice what I did? It's that lateralized fricative again, down here in Navajo. Lay. So, le, la, lay. Present, past, future. Now, the way we think of it is that, well, there's going to be a way of making a present tense verb past that's going to involve some change. And then future is going to be the same way, because you know, French, because Spanish. So, le, la, lay. Well, how about cut out, the verb for to cut out? If the eye offends thee, cut it out. What is that, po or something? Yeah, anyway, the verb is gish. That's the present. So, I'm cutting it out. Gish. Well, how do you make that past? Well, if with the move verb it was le becomes la, then you figure that gish is going to become gosh. <laughs> gosh. Something like that. So, gish, gosh, right? Because language makes sense. No, moving the rope-like thing goes from le to la in the past. But if you put gish into the past, you make it gish. Gish. So for one thing, the vowel does not change into a, it changes into something else. And then the sh becomes a je. Okay. Well, future, you have le goes to lech. So you're figuring the future involves sticking ech onto something. So is it going to be geshelch? And you can almost tell that's not quite going to work. This sh kind of gets in the way. But it turns out that what the future is has nothing to do with anything, with any lateralized fricative or anything. Gesh, present. Gish, past. Future, gish. That's it. It's like the language is almost trying to make fun of you. And so you think. You're trying to make sense of things. And you figure, well, okay, le must be sort of the first conjugation. And then there's this other group, like the second conjugation, that do things like gish. So you wait to see what those groups are going to be. And you learn one verb after another, after another. And after a while, you realize there's, there's no pattern. They're all different. They all do their own thing. And of course, it's not just present, past, and future, depending on how you look at it. There are about 10 things. There's a subjunctive, there's a repetitive, and with each verb, it just does its own thing, and you have to know the patterns. There's no such thing as here's how you form the past in Navajo. Every verb is different. And of course, there are rules of thumb. You know, the people who speak this have human cognition, and you would expect some patterns, but really, they're the broadest of patterns, with as many exceptions as rules. I mean, if these are rules of thumb, then it's more like they're rules of, of ring finger, like a, a finger that doesn't move very well. And so that's what Navajo is like. You have to know how thousands of verbs go. And you know, babies and toddlers can pick this up. And by the time you're old enough to realize how complicated that is, well, it's too late. You're living your life. And of course, ordinary people don't walk around thinking about how their language works, and it's no exception with Navajo. But it really does give you pause. And so talk about John Ford's films. Navajo and Apache are very similar. They're about like Spanish and Portuguese. And in a lot of those classic John Ford films, the Native Americans that are, you know, on the margins... They are often Apaches. And I always find myself thinking, well, this is a great movie, but of course nobody has any reason to think about the fact that these people are speaking one of the most complex, one of the most irregular languages in the whole world. And so, you know, one of the characters might say, well, in my language, the way you say rainbow is blah, 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 blah. And I'm always thinking to myself, yeah, but in your language, you might say, I will come out to see the rainbow tomorrow. 
and then we will talk about what happened yesterday. You're not going to tell them that the way you say will come is completely different from what you say will talk and that there's no regular way of indicating the future at all. Of course, you know, nobody's thinking about that either within the narrative or the Apaches who played those parts often in real life. But any Apache you see in one of those old movies, they're speaking basically this thing that I just explained to you where irregularity is that absolutely implacable. In any case, it's time for a musical cue, and I want to make it something that isn't tacky, and so I'll just make it something that's trivial. Let's do Calamity Jane. This is um, a musical, a Hollywood musical. This is 1953. This is Doris Day singing. It's hard not to like Doris Day, even if you don't like corny old musicals. There's something about her vocal equipment. She is playing what was an obvious knockoff of Annie Oakley and Annie Get Your Gun some years before. So this is the opening scene, and she's a quote-unquote tomboy, and she's coming to the city, and she's singing a very catchy song called Deadwood Stage. People ask why I like musicals, and I'll say that it was all kind of an accident. This is one of the first musical films I sat down and watched because I'd heard of it, and I wondered what it was like. And I remember really liking this song just because it's kind of catchy. So this is the Deadwood Stage. Whip, crack away, whip, crack away. Oh, the Deadwood stage is rolling on over the plains With the curtains flapping and the driver slapping the reins A beautiful sky, a wonderful day Whip, crack away, whip, crack away, whip, crack away Oh, the Deadwood stage is heading on over the hills Where the engine arrows are thicker than porcupine quills Dangerous land, no time to delay Remember that these languages that I'm going to drive by in this episode, these are mostly unwritten languages. Very important to remember, as I always say, that it's not writing that makes a language a language. And so, for example, one of the Eskimo Aleut languages, Inuktitut, has been written a lot in recent decades. It's not that none of these languages are written. You can read a newspaper in Inuktitut. You can have you know, school teaching materials, etc. But with the vast majority of these 300 or 400 languages, they've only been written down mostly by you know, missionaries and anthropologists and linguists, but they are basically oral languages. And nevertheless, notice how they are often vastly more complex than any language we're likely to be familiar with. All the other Native American languages, i.e. the vast majority, are of another group which you could call Amerind. They've been called that by you know, maybe two and a half linguists who have been major lumpers rather than splitters. And I'm a lumper, so I'm not putting it down. But all the other ones you could call an Amerind family. But the truth is that all the other ones simply do not have enough in common to come off as a family in the sense that any person would think of as a family beyond a linguist who's way down into the weeds. If you look at all of these other groups other than Eskimo, Aleut, and Nadine, what there is is about a dozen 
families, and that's a conservative estimate, but you could lump them into about a dozen of what you call families. Then there are a whole bunch of languages scattered among these all over the continent that are what we call isolates. They're like Basque. They don't have any relatives today, no languages that are anything like them. And presumably they had families, and so they're, they're orphans. They were given away, but they actually had families. There must have been other languages like them in the past that got overrun by ones that we see now. And so that would mean a whole lot of other families. And some people would say that even today they're like 40 families. But if you're going to be a lumper, about, about 12. And the question is, do all of the ones today trace back to some one family, to some one language, such that even in the technical sense, we can call Amerinda family the way we can the other two groups. And all of this is very controversial, and I'm not sure it can be resolved. Genetics pretty much make it clear that at some point, the people involved were one thing. Now, whether the people who were one thing spoke this language that was ancestral to all the languages today, that's a very complicated question. Really, there's one piece of linguistic evidence that I find convincing that suggests that maybe there's some tiny shred of an indication that Amerind is a family. And this is evidence that has been put forth most vociferously by Merritt Rulin, who has not had an academic position as a linguist, but in a way, sometimes it's almost because of that that he's more creative than a lot of linguists. And he has been interested in reconstructing, for example, the world's very first language. And I have my feelings about that, which I've expressed on this show before and will express again. But there are times when his less athletic proposals, I think, at least deserve a look. Sometimes only that, but still. So, for example, Merritt Rulin has an idea that in Amarin you can trace back exactly three words, these family words. His idea is that there would have been, if you look at all the languages and think about how all those words could trace back to a single one in the same way as you can trace back the words in that Proto-Indo-European language of Ukraine, his idea is that Proto-Amerind would have had for brother or son, t'ina, t'ina, and then for sister or daughter, t'una, and then for child or, or, or sibling, Anna. So, Tina, Tuna, Tana. Those three. Well, why does he think that? Well, because of hints that you get in the languages even today. So, for example, down in South America, and South America has hundreds and hundreds of other languages, and that would make the topic too big. But just to dip in on them for a second, you have a language called Iranshi. And in Iranshi, male relative is Atina, and female relative is Atuna. So what's that? And then what might seem especially interesting is that then there's an Amazonian language called Tikie. And in Tikie, son, it isn't teen, but it's ten. And then daughter isn't tun, but it's ton. And e and o are really in many ways the same thing as e and u. There's a close relationship. So instead of teen and tun, it's ten and tone, but still son, ten, daughter, tone. In Mohawk, to come back to North America, Boy is Tzin. In Miwok, which is in California, we'll see it again. Daughter is Tune. So you see all sorts of things like this. Dozens and dozens of cases where E is for men and U is for women and A is for something generic. And what's interesting about it is that usually in languages there's a tendency for E to mean cute, 
tiny, little, unthreatening. That's just not in English. So it's not just that we say teeny, but then to assume that e means small is ethnocentric in terms of other places. E does mean e, apparently human-wide, and then things like o and oo, those mean bigger things, and it's just because of the shape of the mouth. But here, it's the e that refers to the male, and the oo that refers to the woman, when men are usually bigger than women. So it seems to be almost an exceptional thing in terms of how languages tend to pattern things out, for better or for worse, and yet you find it in all these languages. Now, the truth is that in the statistical sense, it might be that all of these things are accidents. We're talking about, if you go down to South America, a good 1,000 languages from top to bottom of the hemisphere, and all sorts of variations could lead it to the fact that the Atina Atunas are just one way that it might come out. Maybe these patterns aren't real. You know what? If you asked me, if you wake me up in the middle of the night, I would say, you know what? Probably this is like a little blip of mitochondrial DNA error that reveals that sponges and blue whales are related. Probably. But that's about as far as it can go. What about the actual families that Amerind has led to? Well, one is called Algonquian. Algonquian is spoken in lower Canada, especially the southeastern part of Canada, then down into the northeastern United States a fair amount. And Algonquian includes, for example, Cree, Powhatan, Pocahontas's language would have been Powhatan. And then Algonquian is a lot of the languages that you can think of as sort of prototypical American folk knowledge of what Native American languages would have been. So Narragansett, that was an Algonquian language. Potawatomi, an Algonquian language. Kickapoo, an Algonquian language. Those quote-unquote Indian sorts of names. A lot of those are Algonquian. One of them was um, Delaware. That's not what they called it. They called varieties of this Delaware things like Unami, not Umami, but Unami, and Muncie, but the Delaware language. And you never know what your interpretation of a person's language is going to be if you're not very careful. Part of what linguistic science is, is avoiding the kind of things that poor William Penn did when he had a sincere interest in learning what this language was of the people who he met when he got to this Pennsylvania territory. So here's this Delaware, and he wants to learn it from people, and he takes out his, um, would he have had paper, his parchment? Well, I guess he had some paper, and he's got quill and ink, and he wants to learn this language. Well, these people don't speak English, and he certainly doesn't speak this Delaware, so he really just had to go by the seat of his pants. And you read his notes, and you find that he was completely missing the boat in many ways. Like, you can tell that at one point, he pointed to a house and maybe raised his eyebrows or something, and he's trying to get the word for house, because that's the sort of thing that you start with. And this Delaware speaker said something like, weaken. And so William Penn writes, house, weaken. The thing is, weaken in the language actually meant, I live there. And so he points, and the person says, yep, I live there. And William Pedro, house. And so he thinks that what, that's what it is. And he used that in talking with them, not knowing that he was formulating his own pigeon Delaware. You can imagine how he must have sounded to them. Or you can tell that at some point, I just like to imagine this being in the morning. And so 
it's the morning and there's a bright golden haze on the meadow. He's probably looking at corn and the corn, it's got dew on it and it's growing there. And he points and says, well, what's that? And the person says, Hulaken. And William Penn writes, good. And I'm sure that that's what William Penn was thinking because he didn't know how to grow corn yet and he's hungry or something like that. And so the word Hulaken is good. Well, actually, Hulaken meant that the crops are growing well. The Native American looked and said, yeah, that's coming out pretty well, that corn with the dew on it. Somebody ought to write a song about that someday. But William Penn thought it meant good. And so you could use that with Delaware speakers. Hulaken meant good. You're walking around saying, crops growing well. And they learn that when you say that, it means good. That happened with an Algonquian language. William Penn was trying his best, but it means you have to be really careful when you really don't have a way of communicating. I remember learning that once when I was in Papua for about 10 minutes and I had urgent need of something. And I had a very limited vocabulary, but I had eaten something the night before and the only word I knew was up. And I met these women and luckily they kind of pieced out why I kept saying up and they directed me upward to where something was. You have to be very, very careful. You know what I had eaten? Actually, I had dog. And you can tell why all people in the world don't eat dog. It was like, it was like stringy pork. I would never want to eat a dog again. Something else about Algonquian, other than me making fun of William Penn, is one of my favorite, favorite pieces of grammar that's one of these Huda thunkets that you'd never expect. So we're in Cree, the Cree language. You feed me. Kita sam in. You feed me. Kita sam in. I sound like I'm voicing Cree lessons or something. Kita sam in. So how do you say I feed you? Well, you're thinking it's going to be in sam kita. Or something like nisamikit. Something like that. But in sam kita. No. You don't change the order like that. If you say you feed me, it's kita sam in. If you say I feed you, it's kita sam it in. And eat does not mean eat. <laughs> not, it's not English. But I feed you is kita sam it in. In other words, you say you feed it me. What's the eat? That little eat is something that shows that what's going on is the thing that you would expect less. So in Cree, you feed me is the default. You feed me. Now, if it's I feed you, because you might say that less than you'd say you feed me. What are you feeding me is one thing. Ooh, you get over here. I'm going to feed you. Maybe that's less likely. And so you say you feed eat me. And that's how a person knows that it's me feeds you. That's the way the language works. That little thing is called an inverse marker. It turns things around. So, for example, you could say the man kills the louse. The way you say the louse kills the man, which you wouldn't expect, is not to say the louse kills the man. That's just completely wrong in terms of that word order. You say the man kills eat the louse. And that lets you know that the unexpected thing happens. Just, I love that. In any case, Algonquian is Algonquian. And they're all spoken, you know, over in this kind of easterly part. Except there are these two languages that are a lot like them. Different, but a lot like them. Like distant cousins. They're called Wiat and Yurok, and they're spoken over in California. 
And that lets you know that Algonquian must have been spoken over a much wider territory, uniting these two languages over in Northern California and all these languages in places like Ontario and Massachusetts. And that the situation we have now, therefore, is that other languages came in and sort of split off those two languages from all the others and took over other territories. So you can see how these language isolates would emerge. And one of those languages always reminds me of, of warmth and embrace, and not in the way that you might be thinking. Weot, the Weot language, is one that was being studied by Leanne Hinton's Breath of Life program at the University of California at Berkeley, where I used to teach. And for reasons I won't bother you with, the cards that were being used to help revitalize Weot that summer were at my house for a spell. And when everybody started off on their sessions, it was discovered that the Weot cards were missing. So I drove home and got the Weot cards and came back. And one of the native Weot people who was involved in the program was so relieved that I had gone and gotten the cards. There were all sorts of details involved, but she was so relieved that I had gone and gotten the cards that she just gave me a hug. And it was a very nice, warm hug. And, and I guess I can say this. She was a person of a certain you know, physical substantialness. And so it was a very embracing hug. And so I always associate Weot with being embraced. In any case, that brings on a song, sort of. How Aesthetics Change. This was a hit in 1930. This is Rudy Valley singing. The way he sings now means nothing to us whatsoever, but I have always thought the song was kind of catchy in a goopy, sentimental way. This is a little kiss each morning, a little kiss each night. You've got to keep it going somehow. We'll be so happy, we'll always sing, if we remember one little thing, a little Here's another group, Iroquoian. These are the Finger Lakes groups, for example. So languages like Seneca and Cayuga and Oneida and Onondaga. The Iroquoian group. You hear about the Iroquoian Confederacy when you learn about American history. Iroquoian is also a language group. And the Iroquoian languages are absolutely fascinating in ways that are different from the Algonquian languages, but just as captivating in many ways. My favorite thing about them, and this is very arbitrary, and I've actually discussed this on the show before, but sometimes repetition is good for us, is a particular 
trait of these languages. You never expect a language to be this way. You never know what's going to happen. Here is the Cayuga language, and this is the Lord's Prayer. Now, you don't get a word unless you're one of a very few people in this country, but just listen to it here. Okay, now there's a dog that didn't bark thing going on here. Like you can find out that the person who burgled the house must have been somebody who lived there because the dog didn't bark when the person came in. It's the sort of thing where you don't think of the thing that didn't happen when actually it was crucial to the case. Here, I don't know what case it's crucial to, but what's missing? So just listen to a bit of it again. There are no lips. There is no p, no b, no f, no v, no m. You don't put your lips together in this language. This is an Iroquoian trait. Nobody knows why this happened. You know, who, who knows? There are people who don't like chocolate. You know, well, you do not put your lips together and blow. I guess you have to flirt in some other way in these languages. But no lips. It's just an unusual thing about their sound system. Another one of the Iroquoian languages spoken further afield than in the American Northeast and also southeastern Canada, Mohawk is an Iroquoian language, is Cherokee. And one hears about Cherokee, and partly it's because the great Sequoia created a writing system for Cherokee. So that story tends to get around, and it means that you hear about Cherokee a lot. And he invented a writing system because he saw that English speakers had what he called talking leaves, was like that, and he wanted to have that for his language. And the way he created this writing system is actually instructive in terms of how weird the transition from speech, language being just a mouthful of air, is to writing. So what do you think he did? He saw the talking leaves. He didn't know how to read. What's the first thing you think he did? Well, of course, he, he drew pictures. His original idea was you're going to have a little picture of a dog, and for sleep, maybe you're going to have a little picture of, a, I don't know what he did, a pillow or something like that. But as you can imagine, to try to come up with something like that from the ground up, as opposed to gradually, the way it presumably happened with Chinese, is hard because pretty soon you realize that your language has tens of thousands of words, and really, how are you going to draw already? How are you going to draw sometimes? So he let that go, but then the next thing for him was not an alphabet. So you've got a word cat. The idea that you're going to decide, okay, there's going to be something for k, something for at, and something for t. No. To come up with that immediately would make you somebody who anticipates linguistic science without any kind of training, without anybody helping you, without a foot in the door. And that's not the way it usually goes. People spontaneously 
think of words as being composed of syllables. You find that with non-literate people even today. You say, divide up that word into parts. They don't go, if you ask the person, well, what's, how do you divide up spaghetti? They're not going to say, they're going to say, well, first spa, then ge, then t. So that's how Sequoia thought of his language. And so the Cherokee writing system is a syllabary. The symbols correspond to syllables in Cherokee. And it's really neat looking. Look it up online. And that is something that happened to an Iroquoian language. Now, when you get to California, what's interesting is that in that state, there are at least five families represented. Pretty big state, but still five of these roughly, say, a dozen, maybe 15 families, depending on what you call it, in the continental United States, about five are represented in California, and probably more. There's massive linguistic diversity. Sometimes you see the number 78 languages just in California, and remember that the grand total is about 300 on the whole landmass. Whole lot. Why so many languages just in California? And there are many possible reasons why, but these days, as knowledge of how this landmass was populated, advances by leaps and bounds practically by the month. There are increasing numbers of hypotheses that suggest that it wasn't only that the ancestors of Native Americans came in from Siberia and spread down, but that some of them must have come in from Siberia, but then gone down the coast, and that maybe they even did this by sea. So it wasn't spreading in and kind of splotching down into the Rocky Mountains. Some people maybe started right over there on the edge. And actually, all that diversity in California suggests that because if languages have been sitting and becoming different from one another for a really, really long time, then that means that you're going to have more languages in that place more often. So if you look at the whole map of the distribution of languages in North America, original indigenous languages, then all of that patchwork over there in California suggests that everything started there. And then as you move eastward, well, you don't have as many languages because languages haven't been around for quite as long. So it's just a suggestion. That's the way it may come out. And one indication of it is just how many languages there are in California. But then, of course, what interests me is also what a lot of them are like. And so, for example, one family in California is called Penutian. And anybody who knows anything about these knows that I am stepping into a hornet's nest, a murder hornet's nest, in saying that Penutian is a family at all. And I'm going to step away from that controversy. For these purposes, let me say there's a Penutian language family. One of the languages in it is called Miwok. I mentioned Miwok a little bit before. How about the word for uh, man? So, Nangat. Nangat, that's the word for man, okay? I saw a man. Would it be, I saw a nangai? No, it would be, I saw a nangai. So you have to mark the object. If it's the man's book, so it's the book of the man, it's the book nangang. So a different ending. I gave the book to the man. I gave the book nangato. Or the book is on the man's head. I found a book on a man. Nangam. And this goes on and on and on. So, the book was written by the man, Nangasu. In other words, Miwok has case. Miwok has case endings. The nouns conjugate, so to speak, depending on how you're using them in the sentence, just like Latin. 
And so it's easy to think, well, languages that bother you with all that case stuff, there's something European about it. That's something where it's, it's Cicero or Tolstoy or something like that. No, you get that in any old place. And some continents are more into that than others. But Native American languages include ones where you have to learn cases, just like you're learning for the word for star, stella, 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 stellum, stella in Latin. Same thing. An unwritten language, not a language that's written down. Nobody's writing about Gaul being divided into three parts or writing about their psychobiography or anything like that. This is a language that's spoken. You might talk about Gaul being divided into three parts, and I'm sure they talk about their psychobiography, but these are not written languages, and yet case. Then with some of them. So you can go to another language that marks case. This one is called Yokuts. Yokuts has this, but it's irregular AF, as the kids are calling it. AF means as fuck. So, for example, bone. Ch-i. Well, if you bite a bone, then you bite a ch-ia. Okay? So, house. to eat Now, let's say that you, you buy a house. Do you buy a t-i-a? No. You buy a t-e-i. Just completely different. Vowel changes. The ending is different. You've just got to know. Or a fire. Usit. That's a fire. Okay. Ooh, you started a fire and you you burn that house down. To start a fire, do you start an usit? No. Do you start an usita? No. Do you start an usiti? No. You start an osto. And you just have to know. It goes on and on. You know what this makes me say? It makes me say this. God damn! Shit! That's Robin Harris, the late great comedian, black American comedian. He would start his stand-up sets with that goddamn. If he had ever had to learn yokuts, if the situation had ever emerged where he had to learn to express himself in yokuts, he would certainly have said that many times. And speaking of goddamn, you know, folks, the virus is hitting the media really hard, and Slate is included in that. And there's no danger, but one way that you could help us out is by signing up for our Slate Plus service. And you've heard me talk about this on the show before, but at this point, it's more important than it ever has been before. And with Slate Plus, what you get is an extra bit at the end that you can't access anywhere else, and you get to hear the show all the way through. And this really does help us out in these times, because for a while, we are operating with many fewer resources than we ever have before. So go to slate.com slash lexicon plus. That's slate.com slash lexicon plus. And for a nominal fee, you can not only get extra material, but you can also help out Slate and not just this podcast, but all of them at an unusually lean time. If you sign up for Slate Plus, then this week you'll learn something about Walt Disney you never knew. But you can only find out by signing up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash lexicon plus. Okay, one more. I've always liked this. Tanoan is another one of these families. We're talking about kind of the southern Midwest and westward. And Kiowa, the Kiowa language, throws you. It's like that inverse in Algonquian. You never know what a language's logic is going to be. Default language logic is not how things work in Spanish and German, by no means. So, a skunk, tal, skunks, talgo. Okay, so if you're William Penn, 
you're quite reasonably thinking that gaw is plural. That would be quite reasonable. So talga isn't going to mean like the skunk's reproductive parts or something like that. Talga, it's plural. Good. What about a horse? Well, you find out that it's a tse. Tse. What about horses? Tsega. So a bunch of horses, if you see them all together, tsega. So you're thinking, well, the plural marker in Kiowa is ga. But it doesn't really work that way because, get this, tsol wing. Tsol ga wings. No, that's not it. You find out, your informant, you find out the person you're talking to, like your William Penn, actually points to several, I guess, let's say your big fried chicken wings, several of them, and he says, tsol. And William Penn thinks, well, that must mean one of them, and he holds up one of them, and he says, no, it's tsol, right? And the person says, no, that one is tsolga. Tsolga is the one, little triangle that he's holding up. All of them spread out and covered with barbecue sauce in time for the Super Bowl. That is just tsol. And so you think, well, okay, that's just some exception or something. But then it's the same thing. Let's say you eat them all down. I'm, I'm going by the seat of my pants here, but you eat them all down to the bones. And so William Penn is patting his belly and he holds up one bone and he says, well, what's this person who speaks Kiowa? And they say, tosego. No, not what are all these? What's this one thing I'm holding? Tosego. Well, then what's all this mess down here on the table, that's just tose. So what's the gaw? The gaw isn't plural. The gaw marks what is less expected. So you never see skunks together. They must get together for one thing, but there's always one skunk. So if you do have skunks, then it's going to be gaw. But then with, say, bones, why one bone? You know, outside of a Tom and Jerry cartoon, really, you see a lot of bones. And so one bone is the odd thing, and so it's going to be bone gaw, so to speak or wings. You rarely see just one, like I'm forcing it by talking about, you know, fried chicken. But really, in this setting, wings are on birds. And unless you're a truly unfortunate bird, you've got at least two. And so you always see more than one wing. So one wing, if you did rip the arm off some poor pigeon or something like that, that is a wingall. That's how quote unquote plural works in Kiowa. And this sort of thing just goes on and on. I'm not going to. I hope that I've given you a taste of the wonder of the languages that were spoken here before Europeans came and turned everything upside down. And in return for hearing me out, I'm going to rot your teeth out with sugar. I'm going to play you something from the musical version of Booth Tarkington 17. Booth Tarkington used to be as well regarded as Jonathan Franzen. Now we think of Booth Tarkington as, frankly, Booth Tarkington, and nobody reads 17. But if you read it, then you can tell that somebody must have made a musical of it, and actually it happened twice. And this is from 1950. This is one of the final numbers of 17, sickly sweet, candy corn, blackstrap molasses. This is, if we only could stop the old town clock. Get ready, this is going to hurt. If we only could stop the old town clock So it couldn't go tick and it couldn't go talk Oh, the mayor would bellow and the town would rock But well, we'd have a wonderful time If we busted his chimes, it might be wrong But it couldn't go dick and it couldn't go dong Well, the party be going the whole night long And we'd have a wonderful time Without the clock, life would be just as good as day Cause nobody know what time it was
if we only could paint his face all green So he couldn't be heard And he couldn't be seen Or you couldn't tell seven from six fifteen And we'd have a wonderful, oh what a wonderful We'd have a wonderful time <laughs> it wouldn't go ding and it wouldn't go dong. We're going to have a little addendum here and I'm going to slide us into it gradually. It's 1937. This is Fred and Ginger. This is one of their best movies, Shall We Dance? And they're singing one of their best songs. This is George and Ira Gershwin. You've probably heard this at least in snatches. And it's the one that goes like this. You say either, and I say either. You say neither, and I say neither. Either, either, neither, neither. Let's call the whole thing off. You like potato, and I like potato. You like tomato, and I like tomato. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Oh, let's call the whole thing off. Okay, but the question has always been, always in the back of my mind, who does say potato. Like either and either, yeah, a lot of us say both. And tomato, you imagine a British person may be saying it, but they're Americans. And I've always thought tomato, a cute rhyme, and it's cute to imagine somebody saying tomato. I think I've heard people from across the pond saying it. But I always thought, even in their America, was anybody running around saying tomato? They were. Because listen to, fill in the blank who it's going to be. Listen to Lucille Ball on The Lucy Show. This is 1967, and she's just making a salad. This is very casual. Listen to Lucille Ball, who was from New York State, very casually saying, and not for effect, the word tomato. Oh, look here. Some beautiful tomatoes and lettuce and, oh, you know, something might make a wonderful Caesar salad. But that's not why I bring this episode up, because this episode is with Milton Berle, and listen to what Milton Berle says not long after Lucy says tomato. You know where I can find a very large salad bowl? I'll find Any one. kind I'll of find salad. One. What's that? That's the front door, dear. Oh, I'll get it. Hello. Oh! Oh, it's Rudy Lee, the movie star. <laughs> Just don't stand there. Let her in. Oh! Do you get that? Just don't stand there. Let her in. Milton, Uncle Milty. Why? It's don't just stand there. And, you know, I tried to be a linguist about this. I got a lot of mail about you just can't go in there and start yelling. And some of you get what I mean. Some of you really don't for thoroughly understandable reasons. And I should just say that it's not that I think that it's not clear we always know what the person means. It's just that it seems to me that the word order doesn't correspond to what we mean. In other words, this is just the way languages go. Languages are always full of dings, just like in Yokuts, you say osto as the plural of usit. You just never know what there's going to be. But being a linguist about it, I opened my ears and tried to hear other examples. And one thing I was thinking is, is it really with just can? Because usually that's not how things work. You're looking for patterns. And it's not with just can at all. It's with other auxiliaries too. So for example, just don't stand there. And when I kind of rummage around in my head, I realize that I, like you, have heard plenty of people saying that. And then on top of that, this I would not have had rummaging around in my head. Aaron Brown, thank you for this. This is iced tea. 
And one of his ditties was called, if I may, Bitches Too. The way it went was like this, and listen to how he uses ain't. He went out like a bitch. So ladies, we just ain't talking about you, cause some of y'all niggas is bitches too. So it's that same thing, because it should be, quote unquote, I ain't just talking about you. I'm not only talking about you. You're not upset that I bought you the wrong color dress. You're not upset that we're having carrots rather than celery. I'm just not talking about you and you wish you were getting more attention. It's just that I'm not talking about you. That's what just ain't talking about you would mean. I ain't just talking about you. I am not talking about only (laughs) you. That's the way it quote unquote should be. And I'm not alone in my feeling about this, because if you look at lyric transcriptions of this song, people often switch it to, I ain't just talking about you, because they assume that's what he said. But in colloquial English, you often reverse with just. There's just something about just. In any case, I don't think we're going to go out on bitches, too. So let's go to something a little more interesting, although gritty in its way. This is Lena Horne. And she is singing the wonderful Any Place I Hang My Hat is Home, originally from the musical St. Louis Woman. And she takes the song and really does what many people think of as the signature version of it. She's singing it in the 1950s. This is Lena Horne singing Any Place I Hang My Hat is Home. There's Lena, there's the arrangement, just splendid. Cross the river, round the bend. Stranger, so long, friend. There's a voice in the lonely You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. By the way, Katie Grenfell and Joanne Clark Stein have taught me something that I should have thought of years ago. Sometimes you should put liquor in your peach jello. You'll be glad you did. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I'm John McWhorter. Oh, by the way, Bullet Rock. <laughs>